Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. So hello, welcome to this special episode of a podcast put together from uh, Liverpool, Brighton, Spurs and Newcastle point of view in the race for top four football. I'm Andrew Musgrove, I'm the podcast host of the Everything is Black and White podcast, which covers Newcastle for Chronicle Live. I'm going to get the rest of the panel to introduce themselves and then we're going to talk about who's going to get that final spot, that all-important fourth spot in the race for Champions League football. So over to you first, Matt. Where are you from? Yep, uh, I'm Matt Addison from Liverpool.com. I'm the editor over there and also appearing regularly on the, the Blood Red podcast as well. So looking forward to, to getting stuck into this. And uh, yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting end to the season, I think, for, for Liverpool and, and for all of our teams. Uh, hi, my name is Richie Mills. I work for Sussex Live. I cover Brighton week in, week out. And uh, it's pretty surreal that Brighton are in a top four race-ish. Hello, I'm Alistair Gold. I'm Tottenham Hotspur correspondent for Football.London. Yeah, interesting times at Tottenham right now, uh, as I'm sure we're going to discuss in some detail. Um, yeah, I cover them week in, week out. I have a Golden Guest Talk Tottenham podcast that myself and my fellow Spurs reporter Rob Guest record. So it's great to get everyone together. What I'll do before we start with uh, Alistair, because I'm sure that's what we all want to talk about, is the uh, the chaos at Spurs, for want of a better phrase. I'm just going to put the table on the screen because um, it's really close for the battle for the top four. Uh, we've missed uh, Brentford off the list there, who are actually in eighth and on the same amount of points as Brighton. But um, just before we, we, we start with what's happening at Spurs, I'll, we'll go back around starting with you, Matt, again. When you look at that that table, what's kind of the first thing that springs to mind? I suppose from a Liverpool perspective, you're looking at those two games in hand on Tottenham and, and hoping that Liverpool can can do something in there. I think you've got to look at the fixtures that come up for, for Liverpool. I know Tottenham and, and all the other teams have, have got tricky games as well. But for Liverpool, after the internationals, it's Man City away, Chelsea away, and then Arsenal at home. So I think that's going to be a big week. And it could go one or two ways, really, if Liverpool can get maybe five, six, seven points from those matches. I think it gives them a bit of a platform. Still got Tottenham to come to Anfield. Still the uncertainty around, you know, can can Newcastle and, and to an even greater extent, probably Brighton, can they sustain it all the way to the end of the, the season? I think it's a, a big, big week for, for Liverpool coming up. And if they can get some points on the board against the bigger teams, which to be fair, they have done. It's generally been the, the smaller teams that they've struggled against so far this season. I think a big week is ahead for Liverpool, but... I think they're, they're not in the worst position, considering how poor they've been at times this season. There's been some absolutely atrocious results at times. To, to be in that position, I think probably a month, two months ago, and I'm absolutely, absolutely snapped that up. And for you, Rich, I mean, you've probably kind of already alluded to what your, your answer is going to be to the question, but when you see that table, what what, what springs to mind? Um, madness. I mean, yeah, it's just like... Bryson are bringing out a documentary this year called Stand or Fall, and it basically looks back at the last 25 years when they were a game away from going out of the Football League entirely and, and looked like they were going to go into complete oblivion. So to be even in this position is crazy, but sort of carrying on from, from Matt's point, this month is also pretty crucial for Brighton's hopes of um, Europe. I mean, I think people think that they can maybe get uh, a Conference League spot or Europa League. I think Champions League might be a bit too far, even the likes of Moises Caicedo and co are actually saying, why not? go for Champions League, but they play Brentford, who are obviously on level on points with Brighton on Saturday. Uh, they've got Bournemouth, then they've got Tottenham, they've got Chelsea in the space of just over a fortnight. So I think that's going to be pretty telling whether or not Brighton are really serious about uh, a European push or even a, a top four push. So um, yeah, massive, massive games. And, and I think if they lose the uh, fall at the first hurdle against Brentford, that could be uh, a killer blow. And, and for you, Alistair, because looking from the outside in, 
and I've already mentioned the word chaotic. It does look a bit chaotic, but I looked at the form table as well. In kind of the last six, ten games, the results haven't actually been that bad. I think, especially the last six games, they're only a couple of points behind Man United in the form table, and everyone's saying Man United are the informed team. So when you look at that table, does it kind of tell um, a story which maybe isn't the reality within the camp? I have absolutely no idea how Spurs are fourth in the table. I'll absolutely, honestly and clearly say that after this complete horror show of a season. I have no idea. Unfortunately, it probably only reflects on the other teams as well that they are still in fourth place. I have genuinely no idea. This is a football club that has no men's first team head coach, no women's first team head coach. It's got a managing director of football who now has been told by FIFA he cannot manage or direct football. Um, it's got a star player who is heading into his final 12 months of his contract. It's got fans upset with the chairman. And somehow they're sitting in fourth place in the Premier League. And I have no idea how that's happened. I'd probably say it's mainly Harry Kane based because despite the mess around him, he's still, I think it's 21 goals in 28 games in the Premier League. Um it's just weird. And, and it's really going to be fascinating now to see how they react under an assistant manager who stepped up. Is he going to bring more of the same um, or is he going to be his own man? And I think if he's his own man, that may very much dictate what happens with Spurs in these final weeks. Do you think the sacking of Conte is, is a benefit? To Spurs, or do you think, despite you know what what he said, the way he was going about things, a man of his uh, character, a man of his history, probably would have got Spurs over the line. It's debatable now. I think on paper you would look at it and say Conte, there's a man who's been there, done it. You know, he 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 did it last season. He dragged them up from they'd been in sixth and seventh place in the previous season, got them into fourth. But the problem was he pretty much torched his relationship with the players. And that was the biggest thing. They weren't, I wouldn't say they weren't playing for him anymore, but I think it got to the stage where there was a bit of resentment. He's Antonio Conte is a fascinating character. He's very successful because of how driven and emotional and probably how volatile he is. But he also, as most top managers with the egos they have, he does not take any responsibility for anything ever when it goes wrong. And unfortunately, for a squad of players, that's not always the best thing. And, and I think we've seen at pretty much every club, maybe barring Inter, that at some point Conte has upset a lot of players in the dressing room. And that's what happened at Spurs. And, and unfortunately, it got to the stage where, I hate to use the old cliche word of toxic, but it was starting to get that way. Um, and he clearly was giving off the air of a man that was just doing everyone a bit of a favour by being at Spurs, strolling through on his way probably back to another Italian club. Um, and yeah, I think, whether don't get me wrong, this is a big gamble, putting a very inexperienced kind of um, assistant coach in as a head coach, and also Ryan Mason, who's just had six games himself in the Premier League as caretaker when Mourinho went. It's a big gamble still. But I think the club will believe that just a change in mood and atmosphere might be enough to get them over the line. Maybe. It's a big maybe. I was a little bit surprised he, he lasted as, as long as he did. Because I think it was about six weeks ago, maybe two months ago, when he, he talked about Spurs essentially not having the bottle, you know, crumbling under the pressure. And I mean, I, I never think that kind of man management works because you are essentially throwing your players under the bus. I saw some people talking about the comments that he made saying, well, he's just, he's just telling the truth, you know? So can you give us a bit of an insight into, into whether there are any elements of truth when it comes to, you know, the player's character, the squad's mentality, you know, do they crumble under pressure? Because if they do that, of course, plays into the hands of Newcastle, Liverpool and Brighton. Yeah. Well, I was sat there in that, that kind of final explosive press conference I was there front row asked the first question and to which he just absolutely went off on one he's he's definitely right in a lot of respects I think probably about 90% of what he said is fair about the club again he was missing any involvement of himself in any of that um, it's a really difficult one because when I'd say about the top four race Spurs have actually been quite decent in showing some mental strength when it comes to the top four race. I think probably if they were to do it this year, I think it's top four, six of the last eight seasons. 
So while I can totally understand him when it comes to silverware and obviously a couple of the seasons under Pochettino where they didn't quite do it, uh, like cross over the line in the final stage when they were trying to challenge for the title, I'd say top four race, actually, there's a bit of experience there and know-how. And um, although he hasn't been great this season at all, when you've got Son and when you've got Kane, you've kind of got that that little kind of magic element, <clears throat> excuse me, when even they're playing badly in a game, suddenly goals can come from nowhere. And maybe that's something Spurs have to get them over the line. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I guess that kind of, that experience, and this, Matt, applies to, to Liverpool, I guess, as well as Spurs, is does it then lend to a kind of an expectation that, you know, top four football is a must, you know, with Spurs, you've got the kind of the cost of the stadium and stuff. And with Liverpool as well, you've got, they've just been in the top four for kind of forever. So there's that expectation was, I guess, for Brighton and Newcastle, if they get into the top four, it's kind of, oh, wow, this is kind of a massive overachievement. I'm just wondering from a Liverpool point of view, that expectation, how you think that plays into what we're going to see in the final weeks of the season? Yeah, I think it's it's expectation and it's experience, isn't it? It's for, for Tottenham and for Liverpool in, in that same sort of category of they've been there and they've done it before. I think even you know a couple of seasons ago, it, it looked like Liverpool were going to drop out and then somehow ended up finishing third in the, the season where they had no centre-backs and Alisson scores a header. And you just kind of go into it thinking they'll they'll probably find a way. I think that, that does definitely give them an edge over you know the, the more inexperienced sides in this race. But it just... To, to me, you know, we're talking about the, the top four and obviously from this point, from, from today, it would be an incredible achievement for Liverpool to get into the top four, given how poor they've been this season. But even if they did, it would feel a bit of a wasted season. It would be, you know, the, the absolute minimum for, for this season was to, to come in fourth position. They're not going to win a trophy. They've not been anywhere near what they should have been. They've had, you know, a couple of injuries. They've had a couple of things that have been kind of self-inflicted in terms of, of the reasons for their decline. But I think even, you know... It, it would, as I say, it would be an achievement for Liverpool to get into the top four from, from now. It looked at Christmas as if it wasn't going to be possible. They've managed to drag themselves back into contention and I think it's probably 50-50 whether they get in there or not. But it, it just, even that, I think we would still, from a Liverpool perspective, look back and think you know, it, it probably should have been a little bit more. This is a team, after all, that nearly won everything last season. They were about 40 minutes away from you know potentially winning a quadruple and, and all the rest of it. The, the drop-off has been disappointing but I think there is there is an expectation I think that they do need to get into the top four because it will have an impact on next season not just in terms of, of being in that competition but also potentially what they could do in the summer and, and what that might mean for not just next season but maybe the next two or three. Can you give a bit of more insight into why there's been such a drop off because again they have kind of little spells or they have brilliant results you know beating Manchester United and then they go and lose to Bournemouth I mean what is the reason do you think it has it has dropped off sub so substantially? It's really really hard to, to pinpoint one thing. I think there's there's a number of, of different issues. I think Luis Diaz was by far the best player before he got injured, but he's not played since October. He's now back in contention and probably won't be at his best until next season. But I suppose fundamentally, the thing is that there's just been too many players that haven't been at their usual level. You go all the way through the team, and there's probably only the goalkeeper that can say that he's been at his best this season. The centre-backs have, have dropped off a cliff. I think that the midfield has been a huge issue. Even the forward line has, has obviously undergone a little bit of change. Mohamed Salah has still been consistent, but he's not been at his absolute best. You then look at someone like Darwin Nunez has taken a little bit of time. Diogo Jota has been out injured, but has not scored a goal for pretty much 12 months now. He's been you know, quietly very, very poor in, in that sort of regard when he's been fit. He's contributed in other ways, but there's just been too many elements of the team that have been miles off where they need to be. And I think the only the only thing that I can put it down to really is the amount of minutes that they've played. You think of, of someone like Van Dijk, for example, had you know a, a serious, serious injury that he came back from and he's almost not had a rest. He played almost every game last season and has tried to do the same again. But I think it's probably inevitable that you get to a situation where they just haven't refreshed the squad enough. And I suppose you can flip that for, for yourself with Newcastle, with Brighton as well. Maybe there is that little bit more freshness. Maybe there is a bit more bit more hunger almost as well. I know for, for Newcastle, it would be you know a big step. I, I don't know what your, your thoughts are on, on that, but it, it kind of does feel to me a bit like that was, was maybe the case with Liverpool. They came into this season with far higher expectations and it can be 
can be a little bit easy to feel sorry for yourself at certain times. Yeah, I mean, Newcastle are well ahead of where they thought they would be, even if they finish, you know, in the in the Conference League or Europa League, they'll they'll still be ahead of the project. I think, however, being in the position that they are in, that they've been in earlier this season, there will be a tinge of disappointment if they miss out on the Champions League because, you know, they had, they had a big lead over, you know, not just Spurs, but Man United at one point as well. So to miss out on it would be a bit of a blow, but I think the bigger picture is needed when you look at Newcastle. You know, this is just the start of what hopefully will be a, a successful time on, on Tyneside. They're still building. If you look at the, the squad they've got on paper, there's not a chance that they should be gunning for the top four, you know, above Liverpool, you know, confident that they can catch Spurs with the, with the squads that Liverpool and, and Spurs have got. And I guess, Richie, the same applies to, to Brighton as well. When you compare on paper, at least, the, the squads, it's quite something that both Newcastle and Brighton are in this conversation at all. Yeah, well, I think um, the Brighton's first eleven is actually, you know, very, very good. You've got some of the most sort of coveted, sought-after players in the Premier League and, um, you know, Moises Caicedo, Alexis McAllister, Karu Matoma. Um, but they've also got uh, a wealth of young talent on the bench. And that's maybe what might be interesting to see how far they can go, you know, in the European push. Because, for example, um, they played uh, on the bench. They brought on recently 18-year-old Facundo Bonanotte, 19-year-old Julio Enciso, um, 19-year-old Yasin Ayari, 20-year-old Jeremy Sarmiento, 21-year-old Caicedo, 18-year-old Ferguson. So they've, you know, it's such a young team. But they are, they are very, very hungry. Um, uh, I, I think what's also interesting just from a Brighton perspective is um, how they've almost had two seasons in one because obviously earlier on Graham Potter was in charge for about six or so games and then left and there was a massive furore about that because he took everyone and the tea lady um, at Brighton uh, to Chelsea and uh, and everyone was worried that it would be a big drop-off and now they've actually gone to a, another level. I mean, Jamie Carragher did a really good breakdown um basically comparing Graham Potter from last season at Brighton where they finished ninth, which was their best ever finish in the Premier League, to this season where they're in the European chase. Um, I think they went from being fourth in possession to first in possession. Uh, in terms of big chances created, they went from mid-table to third. Shot conversion, they went from 17th to fifth. And then XG uh, per shot, so expected goal per shot, they went from 14th to seventh. So the, the improvement is just monumental. And the way that they're playing, it's just so fantastic to watch the way that they sort of lure the attacking team in, literally by standing on the ball, and then will do some unbelievable passing to get that numerical advantage further up the pitch and then catch you out. And they've been scoring, you know, I think they're one of the top scorers in 2023 this year, and they're really spreading the goals about. So the future at the moment is looking really, really good for Brighton. Can I just think quickly, just in, in terms of those those numbers that you've, you've picked out there, is is there a bit of a feeling that this is kind of what Brighton are going to be? Is a Brighton going to be in this position next season, do you think? Or or is this the time if they want to get into the top four, they want to, to get into Europe? Is is this the season that it's got to be? Or, or is this sustainable? Yeah, I think, uh, I think um, going back to sort of Ali's point about how uh, I don't think that lots of teams are at their best. It's maybe a little bit akin to the season when Leicester City won the lead. There was quite a few teams who weren't quite at their best then. And I feel that, you know, with Liverpool not at their best, Tottenham struggling a bit. Obviously, Chelsea are massively underperforming. Brighton seem like they could really sneak in. I think this is a great time to do it. Just in point about the next season, um, Brighton have shown, I think, to quote uh, one of the Herberts on... Um, apprentice way back when they've got bounce back ability um they they keep selling their best players and somehow are better they got rid of basuma they got rid of kukurea they got rid of ben white and they just keep getting better and finding these young gems i think at some point the question is will brighton eventually will the wheels come off How, can you keep selling your best players and still find replacements for them and i think if Caicedo goes in the summer and McAllister, that's a massive, massive gaping hole to fill. And I do worry that if it would really stretch Brighton's, even their credible recruitment team, I think that might even push them into the red. So I think this is the perfect time to do it. And I think, yeah, if, if they can keep on to those top players and if they qualify for Europe, that will help in that cause. But I, yeah, I think this is the definitely the, the time is now. 
It's interesting you mentioned the list of players there because I, I, I don't want to speak for, for Matt and Alistair, but I imagine I might be right in saying this. You know, some of the players you've mentioned there, you'd probably gladly take them at the clubs that we, that we cover. You know, Casido, we know he's been courted by the likes of Arsenal and McAllister, obviously, you know, World Cup winner. Some really, really top players. And I guess, uh, Alistair, um, from your point of view, where are Spurs, you know, in the, the next stage of the project? We know they're looking for a new manager. But in terms of the, the, the squad, should that squad be, you know, much higher in the league? I mean, should you guys even be in a conversation where it's, oh, we, we might not qualify for the top four? I think when everyone's fit, and that's definitely right, not right now, Spurs have got horrendous injury problems. I don't actually think they're going to have, I think they've got one of about their five or six fullbacks fit at the moment. The international break has savaged them, uh, ravaged them even more than they were. Um, I'd say as a squad, when the season started, I definitely think, especially with Conte uh, building a new squad, there was a belief that, yeah, they might be up there. They maybe would, would push on to maybe, maybe not, you know, right at the top, but maybe push up to third, potentially kind of mix around the second mark. But uh, the problem, unfortunately, with Spurs, and it just wasn't really fixed in the summer, is, is the defence. And that's coming to kind of the four now. I mean, they've conceded 40 goals, Spurs, which I think all bar six in the Premier League um, have got a better uh, goal. Um, sorry, less goal, fewer goals conceded. Um, it's just been their massive Achilles heel. And unfortunately, the Spurs fans will continue to tell you it's a lot of these players that have always been there, the likes of Eric Dyer, who, who maybe are just not pushing on and developing. And they really needed to upgrade those in the summer. So, I'd say beyond the defence, yeah, I think it probably is a top four squad. But when you're looking behind that, it's absolutely not. And that's what they're seeing right now. And now it, it's fascinating hearing kind of Richie talk about Brighton because I think, and it sounds weird when obviously Spurs have had a, a more successful recent history, but I'd love personally, and I think a lot of fans would, would for Spurs to look at what Brighton are doing and creating this model where it doesn't matter almost who the manager is. They're coming into a very stable setup, a very clear way of wanting to see their team play. And that's why they're probably able to consistently build, like you've just said, and Deserby coming in and doing fantastic work as well. Whereas at Spurs, <laughs> Spurs just lurch from one kind of manager to the next, flip-flopping all over the place. And then when they go, you need to rebuild the squad completely. Um, and now even, you know, looks like the managing director of football could be potentially heading out the door as well because he's not actually allowed to work because of his ban. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I see Spurs obviously will have an interest in De Zerbi, But if I'm De Zerbi, I'm thinking, no, why? Why would you leave an incredibly stable club on the up to go to one that is just in a constant state of flux right now? I think, you know, absolutely stay there, crack on, do what you do. And he's only been there, was it seven months? Is it something like that? Yeah, October, yeah. Yeah, just just keep rolling with what he's doing because he's onto a great thing there. And I honestly, under him, I can see Brighton becoming more of a mainstay in those higher kind of reaches. Um, as for Spurs, I don't know. We'll have to see what happens next. It's a massive if, as always, with Spurs. Uh, Andrew, I just wanted to ask from a Newcastle perspective, obviously, um, at the start of the season, you had you know loads of draws, and then you had an unbelievable run, obviously getting to the Carabao Cup final, and then you had a bit of a blip since. How's it kind of been Newcastle-wise? You know, obviously having that big disappointment, um, and then since then, I guess how's it been? Um, I mean, the, the two wins before the international break were absolutely crucial because if they hadn't picked up maximum points, then we definitely wouldn't be having this podcast. I don't think you know they really <laughs> needed to be beaten Nottingham Forest and Wolves and you know they were very impressive against Wolves but Nottingham Forest they were absolutely superb and I know two teams battling for their lives but you've got to beat what's out in front of you and they were really good um, against Nottingham Forest had they come away with just a point you would have been absolutely livid because they played them off the park they were fast with the ball they were just brilliant to watch and I think it was really important to get those those wins coming into the to the international break knowing that Man United are next on the horizon um, because it sets them up really nicely. I look at the the remaining fixtures for all the clubs, and I think Newcastle probably got the easiest running. Um, by all means, someone disagree with me, but you know they, they, they play 
four of the teams around them. But after that, you know, they're all teams you know, either in mid-table or, or battling for the lives, which, of course, is not the easiest of, uh, you know, games to have if you are battling against someone down for, for relegation. But I do think they've probably got the easiest running. It was just important to get set up um, for the return of Premier League football. They're getting their, their full squad back together. You know, Jolinton's going to be back from suspension. Isaac's finally looking like uh, the player that they, they signed back in the summer after some horrendous injuries. We just need to see the defence because I think they're in this position in the table because they've had the best defence in the league. You know, they've still got the best defence in the league. But of late, we're seeing basic errors creeping into the game, you know, letting the man run, you know, being careless with the ball. I mean, Nick Pope's had a few errors, which is just not 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 been like him. We just need to see them errors getting erased and and, and hopefully the defence can play like they did at the uh, once their form really started to pick up after they beat Fulham early in the season, then I think I would be quietly confident of them, you know, clinching the top four. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's all a bit of a gamble, isn't it? You, 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 nothing's certain um, when it comes to Newcastle. You're nothing's certain in the Premier League. But, yeah, it, it was really important that they picked up them two wins and hopefully they can they can get the better of my United um, on Sunday. And, I mean, there's there's some big games coming up for for. for Everyone, isn't there? I mean, you, you, Liverpool-wise, they've got Man City, Chelsea and Arsenal all in a row, which is going to be a, a defining part of the season for you guys. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really tricky week coming up. And, you know, two of, well, the first two are both away from home as well. I think there's, you know, even though Arsenal at the top of the table, it kind of feels like that's the one that you'd, probably think that Liverpool have got most chance of winning just because that's at Anfield. It's the third one of, of the week. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with you know, the, the Manchester City game. If Liverpool can get something out of that, maybe it sort of it takes the, the pressure off Arsenal a little bit. I think they'll probably want to, to match the result that City get against Liverpool first. And there's so many, so many elements to it. But I'm almost more worried about the games that follow that than, than those three, to be honest, from what we've seen from Liverpool this season. It has tended to be you know, a 3-0 defeat to Wolves and, and a 1-0 win against Manchester City, for example. It, it tends to be the, the other way around to, to what you'd expect it to be with Liverpool. So if they can get through this week, maybe maybe unbeaten or, or maybe get you know maybe six out of nine or something like that. If they can, you know, I'm not expecting them to go and, and win all three games, but if they can take something positive, it's then just going to come down to can they be consistent enough and, and can they sort of beat the teams that you'd expect them to beat. That's what they haven't done so far. But obviously, Luis Diaz is, is coming back and I think he will make a, a huge difference. I think that's that's probably the, the difference. The thing that gives me the most confidence, I think, is Liverpool have, have got that player who they know that he's not going to come back and, and play 90 minutes every single week. But you'd look at, at the other three teams and, and maybe they don't have someone like that that, that come back uh, you know, with, with 12 games or, or so left of, of the season. I think that could be a, a real, real difference maker for Liverpool. And I guess the consistency, Alistair, is something that Spurs have, have lacked as well. You know, they the, the, the beat one team and they go and have a disastrous result. And I know everything that's been happening off the pitch, but that consistency, if Spurs can find it, then you would say they're probably favourites for the top four. Yeah, I mean, it was exactly the same last season. Um, they'd win one, lose one, win one, lose one. It was the weirdest kind of run they had and they just could not shake out of it until... I think they went to Old Trafford actually and played. Uh, they lost. It was Ronaldo scored a hat trick, but the performance was really good. And there was something about it that jump started them. And then from that point on, they kind of won the majority of the remaining fixtures, and that that took them into fourth place. And they need exactly that really in this run in now because, yeah, like you were saying, there's some little clusters of fixtures that are going to be a bit of a nightmare I think within the space of seven days I've got to play Newcastle away United at home and then take the trip to Anfield all within the space of seven days that that is probably the most deciding top four weeks Spurs could possibly have really um, but then around that obviously they've got Brighton at the Spurs so I think two of the next three games are at home they've got Brighton and Bournemouth both at home but they're away at Everton on Monday night um, and that's going to be an interesting thing even just that having playing after everyone else this coming weekend it's going to be a big thing for the mood. Are they still in that top four? Or are they going to have to be playing catch-up? Um, and how does that affect, you know, when you go into a team like Everton that are scrapping away for everything right now? Um, this is the massive problem with Spurs right now. We, there's so much unknown. We don't know how they're going to respond to 
they were generally pretty good under Stellini while Conte was away in Italy, getting um, recovering from his emergency surgery. But then when it was announced that Conte was coming back in the last two games under Stellini and Mason, they started to drop off and they had that absolutely horrendous uh, FA Cup defeat at Sheffield United when they looked like a non-league team pretty much for most of it. So it'd be interesting to see what kind of Tottenham we now see. Will it be one that's slightly had the shackles taken off them, I guess, they're not going to have the same, or will Stellini just be Conte's man and do pretty much the same thing? I think injuries are going to play a massive part in how much he can change it. I think a lot of Spurs fans would love to see him go to a back four, for instance, but right now, as I said, they've got no fullbacks, so it's more likely you're going to see attacking players shoved into wingback roles. Um, so... Yeah, obviously, consistency would be wonderful. It's not really a word that Spurs have heard much of in the last probably four years since Poch went, to be honest. Um, very much under Mourinho and the bizarre Nuno Espirito Santo experiment for all of four months or so. There was no consistency whatsoever. And Conte has struggled as well. So the only thing I think Spurs fans can cling to is the end of last season when they showed a tough mentality. They got their heads together. They found that consistency. They were definitely helped by having one game a week for much of it. And obviously, with Spurs being absolutely awful in all com- cup competitions pretty much this season, they found themselves in this scenario again. Um, resolve, obviously, I was trying to think, no, everyone. It's the same for everyone now, Chasing, isn't it? So, absolutely, there you go. Absolutely no advantage for Spurs whatsoever. Um but yeah, now nah, we'll see what happens. It's, it's much is on um, how Stellini beds in and, and how quickly and if he becomes his own man. We talk about the expectation there, you know, of of getting the Champions League. I'm just wondering, Alistair, in terms of appointing the next manager, how important is it that Spurs get Champions League? Because if you're a top class manager and you pick up the phone this week and they go, "We would like you to start in the summer," some managers. I know right at the top of the game, might go well, let's wait and see if you're in the Champions League. Or do you think Spurs is a big enough draw that most managers, regardless of whether they're in the Champions League or not next season, will go, right, OK, let's do it. Let's start the project. Yeah, it works both ways. I mean, I'm sure like most players, it's a very attractive thing to be able to kind of look at and compete in. And, and every manager wants to be competing at that top table. However... I suppose you could argue Conte was one of the biggest and he came without that on the table. Um, and I know it's such a cliche and I don't think anyone is impressed by buildings, but I guess when you're a manager and you come and look at the Tottenham Hotspur training complex, which is one of the best in the world, and you see what your daily office is going to be on that training pitch is where you're working with the players, that shows you the scale of probably more so what the club wants to be than it is now. Um, and the same with the stadium, you know, which is just ridiculous. Um, and and maybe you see the scale of a club. And I think it definitely comes down to an ego thing. I think there's a lot of managers, Mourinho and Conte are perfect examples, that kind of think this is almost like a, um, a, a sleeping giant of sorts. I don't know how long a club can sleep for to still be considered a giant. But Spurs have been asleep for a fair few decades now. Um, but they all look at it and think, yeah, no, I'll be the one that changes it. I'll be the one that takes them to a new level. Um and that's probably what Daniel Levy's clinging to, that someone wants Spurs to be their next project. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say Champions League is essential to get a top-quality coach. I think there will be quite a few on the market this summer, but there will also be probably a, a lot of top jobs probably on offer as well across Europe. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it would help. It would certainly help. Will it be crucial, do you think, Matt, in terms of the... The transfer market, because the last time you came on to the Everything is Back on my podcast, we were speaking about, you know, the summer transfer window and, you know, if Newcastle in the Champions League being able to offer, you know, European football ahead of Liverpool if they're not. I mean, how important do you think that is in terms of, you know, what's to come in the summer? Because, you know, if you're a top player, you want you want Champions League football, don't you? Yeah, I think it's probably more a financial thing for Liverpool than it is sort of the appeal of the project. I think it would make a big difference when you think of how much Liverpool are going to have to spend this summer. The midfield, they're not going to bring any transfer fees in for Naby Keita and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. They're going to have to buy at least two players in that position. And they've got young players who are coming through and and Stefan Bajetic, I think, is going to be a big part of, of the team still next season. But they are going to have to go and get two midfielders in the summer. One of them 
everyone hopes can be Jude Bellingham, but that's going to cost you more than 100 million. I don't think it would be completely dead if, you know, Liverpool finished outside of the top four. I think, you know, he's young enough that you could sort of sell that project of sort of getting back in and being the man to transform the midfield in the same way that Alisson transformed the goalkeeping department and Van Dijk did for, for the centre-back. It, it, it does feel like it would still be realistic in terms of, of selling that project to him, but obviously it would help. And I think that the bigger thing is, is just the amount of money they're going to have to spend. They, they need as much revenue as, as they can get, you know, being out of the Champions League for a season. I think, well, obviously when Liverpool have, have been in it recently, they've tended to to go quite far in it. When they've got to, to finals in the past, I think it was the season that uh, they, they got all the way in and won it against Tottenham. That was, I think, about 100 million that they brought in from that run. It's going to be similar from last season when they went all the way to, to the final again. I mean, that... That money is is hugely significant to, to what Liverpool can do in the transfer market. It's hugely significant to, to the longer term. I think it, it it it's easy to say it, and, and obviously it will be the case for Brighton and, and Tottenham and Newcastle to a certain extent as well. But it, it really does make a huge difference to, to what Liverpool can do. The model that they have, the the money that they generate, goes back into the club and. Yeah, it's it, the, the success that they've had has been predicated on first getting into the top four, then staying in it, and then they've been able to build season on season. And that's how you stay in there. I do wonder moving forwards whether that might change a little bit just because you think of, of Brighton and Brentford are there. Tottenham, whether they get in this season or not, will probably be, be there or thereabouts next season. Newcastle are going to challenge. Chelsea are going to come back into it. We're not going to have the same top four every season for the next few seasons. That that just can't happen now in the Premier League because things are, are so strong. So maybe maybe that will change a little bit. But certainly, you know, for, for looking ahead to this summer, it would be a massive boost against that top four. And Richie, in terms of Brighton, we mentioned earlier in the show that you know if it was Newcastle or Brighton, you see a massive four of achievement. But obviously, with Newcastle and the wealth that's at the club, you know, there is a kind of a different expectation that, well, we're there, they've, you know, they're going to spend all this money or they've spent a bit of money, so they should be battling. With uh, Brighton, very much the underdog, is that something that you think, you know, the coaching team and the manager likes, you know, they'll just go about their business and if they end up qualifying for the Champions League, you know, of course they'll take it, but right now, it's not really, I mean, how, how at the front of the mind is it that the Champions League could be a possibility? Well, it's interesting. So, um, in under Graham Potter, he was a bit more reticent to talk about, I don't know, the big picture or stuff like that. He was kind of game by game, cliche, blah, blah, blah. Um, but Deserbi has basically said, I want my players to dream of Europe. And that's filtered down to the players themselves. I said, Kaiseido has talked about it. Uh, the left back, Pervis Estupinan, who uh, he was a replacement for Kukure, who was obviously sold for 55 million or so to Chelsea. And he's probably been a better buy and he's cost 15 million again so um but yeah it's filtering down the expectation is probably not there uh they're getting a lot of plaudits i think what's interesting is that um if you really want to be i guess at the top you maybe need to have a plan b sometimes just in terms of your game plan if plan a isn't working and i think what some teams have done well against brighton is it's a little bit reductive but essentially just getting lots of men behind the ball sitting deep low block hitting them on the counter fulham were a fantastic example of that a couple of months or so ago they had i think you know 30 or 40 percent of the ball a handful of chances but somehow scored a late win to win it so i think if you can yeah so that, that, that's one way of beating them and then the other way which is very high risk is what arsenal did and their press was fantastic it's really hard um usually for teams to sort of press and smother Brighton under the Zerbi, but they were so quick to smother them early because what the Brighton like to do is literally pass out from their own area. And Bright, uh, Arsenal were very good at doing that. So there's, there's sort of two ways. So I think if if Brighton are able to win um, ugly sometimes, which they showed against Bournemouth, uh, that's another part of their game, which I don't know how, how much they have of that in their Arsenal. But I think that will be be key. But yeah, I, again, it's Brighton fans. This is the best time in their history right now. 
I think that's a really interesting point in terms of, of teams changing the way that they play against Brighton. And I'm sure for you, Andrew, it's probably been the same for, for Newcastle this season. For, certainly from, from the outside, it, it certainly looks like maybe at the start of the season, teams were a little bit more expansive and, and took Newcastle as being a mid-table team. But the further the season has gone on, it, it kind of feels like they've they've changed a little bit as well. Do you, do you think Newcastle are better set up to, to deal with that now maybe than, than a Brighton Hall? Or is that, again, something that you might have to look at in the summer? I think they're gonna, it's something they'll have to look at in the summer because what we saw maybe between middle of December uh, and, and up until recently is that clubs kind of worked out how to stop Newcastle being most potent in Newcastle early part of the season. If if teams allowed them to hit them on the counter, Newcastle would, would make the most of it. You know, they were quick going forward. They kind of absorbed the pressure and then hit them. Whereas teams recently have kind of said, okay, well, well, we'll give Newcastle the ball and Newcastle are going to have to come on to us and let's see how you can do with that, which they haven't done to the best of, the, of their ability, in my opinion. We've, we've started to see Newcastle kind of, I think, get their heads around it against Nottingham that had a bit more of the ball. It, it's just interesting to see how the the bigger teams, so like My United, for example, on, on Sunday, to see how they were set up against it, you would, you would think... Um, well, actually, I don't know whether whether maybe they'll allow Newcastle to have more of the ball because I don't think Newcastle are, are overly comfortable at the moment in having to take the game to the opposition just simply because the early part of the season, the success they had was built on a, a high press and hitting teams on the counter. And we've seen, especially when their form dropped off, they weren't pressing as high. And, and whether that was because, you know, the... the they were so fit at the start of the season. Like I, I would, I would go on record and say they, they were maybe the best high pressing side in the league, maybe the fit, the, the most fit because Eddie Howe just kind of really drilled it into them, um, and it's it dropped off turn of the year sort of time. But they seem to have picked it back up. So it's going to be interesting to see if they can maintain that because if they can maintain the high press and work out how to also control the game when they've got the ball, you know, it's going to be a really you know, a successful end to the season, but maybe a bit easier said uh, said than done. Um, Alistair, in terms of the league positions at the moment, is it better to be the team chased, do you think, than the teams chasing? The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I guess so. I guess so. It's the old cliche, isn't it? It's, it's always better to have the points on the board than the games in hand. Um but uh, it's as you can tell, I'm slightly pessimistic at Spurs uh, at the moment. <laughs> and you just uh, they will do everything in their power to to throw away any advantage they get. It just seems to be the way this season. And any time there's been a moment where others have stuttered around them, they've failed to really kind of capitalise that. Um, I mean, even you know, that's the weird thing. Had they won at Southampton. Conte would probably still be in charge. Spurs would be in third place in the table right now. Um, and it would be such a, well, kind of a different a different scenario in terms of uh, from the front looking in, but probably exactly the same chaos happening behind the scenes. Um, yeah, I, th I think it has to be. I think it has to be, if you've got those points on the board, then you're in a better position. You've already got those. But I'd say with the amount of games... You know, with Newcastle and Liverpool both having two games in hand, that, that's a big opportunity. Um, like I say, I still think that week is going to be crucial, the one where Spurs play kind of pretty much all of the above. Um, Brighton, obviously, it's like you say, it's, it's a kind of bit uncharted territory. We don't really know what's going to happen in these coming weeks with them and, and whether they can maintain this. Um, you know, all signs do point towards the fact that they, they very well could, you know, with some of the performances they've been putting in this season. And obviously they've got a, coming to Spurs is going to be a biggie. Um, I think, yeah, pretty much Spurs play everyone, um, and, uh, as most of the teams probably do at this business stage of the season. Um, yeah, I think these next few weeks, are good. well, they have to be the killer because they're the business end of the season. But I do think that, that Brighton one's going to be a, a fascinating kind of... Uh, it could either end Brighton's hopes or absolutely could give them every motivation to crack on for the remaining weeks. I mean, what do you reckon, Richie? Yeah, I think um, obviously uh, Tottenham did a, a pretty good job, I think, on Brighton early on in, in De Zerbi's tenure. Um, they, what Brighton like to do is sort of pass through the lines in midfield. And I think 
what uh, I think Basuma and, and Hoibo did pretty well was sort of closing those off. Um, so that was another way. But obviously that was pretty early on when Brighton were going for a not particularly good patch. Now they're a completely different animal. Um, and they, they're playing with pretty much no fear. Um, they, it's, I mean, yeah, Pep Guardiola came out recently and, and praised Azerbi for sort of, you know, bringing this fantastic style of football to the Premier League and others will maybe, you know, obviously there's been many disciples of um, Guardiola, but there could be some in Deserbi's ilk in years to come. But yeah, I think um, obviously Brighton beat uh, Tottenham last year at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm probably not helping much because I had rubbish at predictions. But um, yeah, I, I think, uh, well, first off, obviously Brighton have got Brentford this weekend at home. If they win that, then they've got Bournemouth and then they've got Tottenham. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I guess going back to you, Ali, what, what I wanted to ask was, um, this is a bit left of field, hmm. but is there a, a feeling that Tottenham need a proper big rebuild and therefore might have to sell Harry Kane even to to fuel that and take them in a new direction? Or is that crazy talk? Yeah. <laughs> If you believed pretty much everyone outside Tottenham Hotspur, Harry Kane's gone. He's already out the door and all this sort of stuff. But obviously anyone at Spurs is like, yeah, but well, we hear that every single year. Obviously the contract situation makes it a little bit different this time around with 12 months left. But I think the problem with Harry Kane and rebuilding is, and this is something that I keep hearing within the club as well, is that logically without Harry Kane you've got less chance of getting top four next season it's 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 pretty much as simple as that as they've seen this season so you know as Matt was saying about the the figures involved in the Champions League and what you make I mean what Spurs 12 months of his contract left maybe you're looking at 60 70 80 million something like that that's pretty much similar to what they get for being in the Champions League and going on a decent run so you're kind of it's you're giving up one for the other probably and then obviously the other side to it is to replace Harry Kane, you don't even just buy a striker. You have to buy an attacking midfielder and a striker because he performs both roles for Spurs. He essentially bails them out in creativity and goals. Um, so you're probably looking at spending, I don't know, the same figure again just on two players. So it's one of those where I think from the outside, it's very easy for people to say, well, you know, you've got to cash in. Surely you've got to cash in on him now. But actually... I wouldn't be shocked if Spurs, there's two ways they're looking at this, either that they can tie him down to a new deal. And to be fair, he seems open to discussing a new deal. That's very different, obviously, to open to signing a new deal, but at least he's kind of getting him to the table is a big thing. Um, and then also maybe the other thing is, is if you do allow him to leave for free next summer, which, to be absolutely fair to Harry Kane, he has earned... He really has. He's the club's all-term goalscorer. If anyone were to walk away and not have any, you know, hate towards him from the fans, it probably would be Harry Kane. I still think financially they actually would probably be better off. It's a really weird scenario, and it sounds mad to, to kind of anyone listening from the outside, but that's that's kind of the thinking behind it, I think. Um, again, with Spurs, it just comes down to who comes in next. Because if it's a manager that excites Harry Kane, suddenly everything looks different. But if it's with no disrespect to absolutely pummeling him again. But if it's another Nuno, Harry Kane just thinks once again, no, no, I need to go elsewhere. It's interesting because the Harry Kane scenario isn't too dissimilar, I don't think, to, to Alan Shearer at Newcastle United. You had this talisman, you had, you know, a couple of years here or there where Newcastle were challenging for, for the title and they you know Sir Boy Robson and the Kevin Keegan. And then it, it the kind of in-between bit was was pretty dire and the bit afterwards was pretty dire and there was always links to him moving on and Liverpool were linked to a massive move and in the end he ended up staying didn't win anything you know but he you know he always says he, he doesn't regret a thing so this, the scenario is a slightly uh you know the, the same there in terms of what will Harry Kane do um I asked you that about being chased in terms of Spurs um one everyone's chasing down I've also got um, a quick clip from um, the My United perspective, because uh, viewers and listeners will obviously realise we haven't got anyone from the Manchester United side to, to come on to this show, because I think, are we all in agreement that we think Manchester United will get third, guys? No. I don't yeah. know. No. I don't know. I'm not definitely saying that. Oh, no. there we go. Maybe, maybe I uh, 
made a mistake here. But what I have got is one of our colleagues from the Manchester Evening News. So um, we'll play this clip now. And this is uh, his view on the race for the top four. And of course, not being invited into this uh, this round panel on the chase for Champions League football. So this is Dan Murphy from the Manchester Evening News. As you heard there um, with the rest of the lads, I've not included the My United perspective into this special episode for the race for the top four. Uh, Dan, how are you feeling about that? I completely insulted. Can't believe I've been left out. It takes me back to takes me back to primary school football when I was always the last to be picked, just standing there twiddling my thumbs as as the teams are already picked, and I'm, you know, re- begrudgingly taken by the uh, the last captain. And to be fair, he's completely right because I'm absolutely rubbish at football. But I'm sure United aren't feeling that insulted this time because, you know, as you say, as I'm sure the lads have said, it's, it's debatable whether United are in the top four race. And I, I don't know if I'd, I think I'd stretch it more to a top, I suppose it is a top four race, but there's two spots available for it. There isn't just the one because, you know, United could implode and they're not that far ahead as I'm sure you've discussed. It's, it's, it's up in the air. I expect United, as I'm sure we'll get onto, to clinch it, but it's, it's by no means set in stone, absolutely. And uh, who are you tipping to get that final fourth spot? We're all assuming, maybe wrongly, as you've said there, my United will get the third spot. Mm. So who's going to get the fourth spot out of? Who we've got on the show, um, we've got myself from Newcastle point of view, we've got Alistair from the Spurs point of view, we've got Liverpool point of view, and we've got the Brighton point of view as well. Mm. So who's going to grab the, the fourth spot of those? Mate, it's well interesting, because it? it's so up in the air. Tottenham, having played two games more, or three games more in Brighton's case than everyone else, and the turmoil they're in, they're, it does feel like they're heading in one direction, but have they acted at the right time in getting rid of Conte and bringing in the assistant, uh, whose name escapes me, but did really well um, when Conte was recovering from surgery. It, it's, it's interesting. Newcastle say two games in hand, Liverpool two games in hand, but they just don't seem consistent enough at the minute and all over the place. You know, I'm looking at Brighton and I'm looking and they're so good at the minute. They've got nothing else to distract. Oh, they have the FA Cup, actually, don't they? So maybe they'll go for that. Um, they've got, they're so good. They've got three games in hand. And they'll actually have another game in hand at some point because they're not playing the weekend. They'll be in the semi-final. So you'd rather have the points on the board, of course. And they are seven away from that fourth spot. But I, oh, something about it intrigues me. I'm, I'm, I don't know who the games in hand are against off the top of my head. But I'm looking at them and I'm what, thinking... One's Newcastle. Oh, well, right. Well, that is a tasty little one. You know what? Whoever wins that, because I was just going to get to Newcastle there, whoever wins out of Brighton and Newcastle, I'm going to go for it. But I do think, looking at it, it's hard to argue against Tottenham at the minute just because they are in the position. They have got the, the, the rank at the minute. But and you'd rather have the points on the board, of course. But Newcastle, the two wins before the international break after a bit of a, uh, after a, bit of a lull, bit of a... Bit of a blow losing that Caribou Cup final. Took a little little short while to get their heads round, get everyone back. Newcastle could keep consistent and have the, like a second win later on in the season. I think it's theirs for the taking, but that, that Brighton-Newcastle game, when is that? It hasn't been uh, picked yet, I don't believe. If Brighton can win the rubber two and it's um, if it's neck and neck by the time they meet, winner of that, I'm going to say. It'd be, it'd, be, it'd be a story for either of them. Obviously, I think the more romantic story is Brighton, just given the, the differences in sort of investment, but of course Brighton uh, uh, by no means poor by any means of the imagination. Either or would be obviously just really fresh, wouldn't they, and, and fun and exciting. So whoever wins out of Brighton and Newcastle, that, that's that's what, that's what I'm going to go for. Because as I say, I do think United, out of all of them, United are the most informed team, aren't they, and certainly look the most assured in their position. And that uh, game is at St James's Park whenever it's picked. So that is going to be a very interesting game, as Dan said there. Dan, thanks for your insight. We'll get back to the live show now. So there we have it. Richie, Dan seems very keen to have Brighton joining uh, Manchester United, City and Arsenal in the Champions League next season. Yeah, he's a smart man. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, it seems to have forgotten that Liverpool beat them 7-0 only a couple of weeks ago. They said they were the most informed team in the division. Well, it's funny. We've just recorded uh, our view from the opposition because Newcastle play Manchester United this Sunday. And he didn't mention that game once. Didn't mention that result once. So maybe he's trying to erase it from, from his memory. Um, a question for, for, for Matt and I'll start coming to you first, Matt. Just in terms of Newcastle, we know there's perceived wealth behind them. As I mentioned, they're well ahead of schedule now, but they've gear crashed the party. 
Uh, they look like they're here to stay. Has that kind of uh, put the cat among the pigeons, do you think, in terms of the, the, the so-called established you know, top six? And, and just how important is it that, from a Liverpool point of view, a Spurs point of view, that you know, they don't allow Newcastle to, to get that top four place? Yeah, I think it's inevitable at some point, but the longer Liverpool can put that off, I think it, it's probably beneficial. I think, like I said before, you're looking at so many teams now that, that could sort of get into to those top four places. And I think last season, or next season, I should say, is, is the only, the, the last normal season of the Champions League. I think after that, you start to move into that kind of Super League type stuff, which I'm not entirely convinced of. But I think that might be, uh, it might actually end up being quite helpful for Liverpool with with the, the Newcastle thing. And I've not quite got my head around all of the uh, the changes and, and the ramifications, but there are certain changes there which are going to come into play as well. But yeah, it's it, it's just one of those, really. I think Newcastle, I think everyone has been surprised how far they've come this season. But then if they do get into the top four, it would just give a springboard, really. It just fast forward those plans. Like I say, it, it does feel... It feels inevitable that Newcastle will become a regular in the top four at some point. Arsenal have done a lot better than what most people would have thought that they've done this season as well. I think Manchester United are going to improve. There's still a bit of a work in progress. There is, there's an opportunity, I think, for Liverpool and for Tottenham to get into the top four this season. But yeah, whichever way, I think within the next five years, Newcastle are going to be regulars in that top four anyway. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The same question to you, Asta. What's your, what's your viewpoint on it? I know, well, I think you can tell Daniel Levy is is terrified of Newcastle and I think the financial might that they're going to bring. Um, he put It was an interesting, uh, they did their financial statement for the year and uh, Daniel Levy spent a big chunk of it talking about how, um, you know, it's fine. The way we're doing it is absolutely fine because, you know, the big financial fair play regulations are coming in in a couple of seasons. And honestly, it was a big old kind of list of uh, reasons why. Don't worry, Spurs fans. I know everyone else is going to spend a lot more than us, but we'll be OK. And it's like kind of ignoring the fact that if these other teams are able, like Newcastle, to spend more in the next couple of seasons, they're going to set themselves up in a very good way for those years when the, the restrictions do get a bit tighter. Um, yeah, I think Newcastle, obviously, everyone's going to look at them and, and be worried about what they can do, especially because of what Eddie Howe has done and getting them into the kind of, I suppose, having your foundations far higher than maybe a lot of people expected they would be. Um, and to be fair, you haven't exactly spent mega money yet. You know, you spent probably good money on the right purchases, which is the key thing. Um, so, yeah, when, when the, uh, the money actually starts kind of rolling out that little bit more, it's uh, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting kind of playing field. But then, you know, as Matt pointed out there, he said about Arsenal. Arsenal are doing a lot of the stuff that Spurs were doing very well under Pochettino. You know, it doesn't have to be splashed cash out. It has to. It can be the right purchases. It can be a progressive young manager doing the right things with a young team. And that in itself can put the cat among the pigeons exactly the same way, but just with, with different resources. So... It shouldn't cause any team to absolutely give up and think, you know, we can't compete with these kind of big clubs, but certainly I'm sure it helps. <laughs> and I guess that's probably one one of the the point is that it, like if you look at Liverpool, you know, Klopp's been there for, for years, the consistency there, the same man in charge, you know, the same kind of ethos. You look at Brighton, you know, Potter was there for a long time and you know, the, the, the kind of how it works off the pitch. I know obviously Dan Ashworth's moved to Newcastle. Um, but you know the ethos again has been running through the club, and it's it's seemed to have been a nice transition with Newcastle. You can see what they're trying to do. You know, bringing Ashworth to to uh, to the club. You know, Amanda Stavely has, has said that she'd like Eddie Howe to be the kind of the Alex Ferguson of of Newcastle in terms of longevity. I guess with Spurs, that's maybe the big red flag. Is that I don't, I don't know the exact number. You'll be able to tell us. But how many managers have they had over the last few years? And I guess that like a consistency you know, in terms of the dugout and the, maybe the ethos running through is probably the, the, the big major flaw and maybe a reason why they're not challenging for more than just top four football. Yeah, Spurs in the last 22 years have sacked 12 different managers. In the same time, Arsenal have had three and <laughs> and they've won stuff. So, yeah, it, it's it's there on paper to be seen. You know, Spurs just keep chopping and changing and don't really get anywhere. 
And so that's what's that? Twelve. It's it's twelve managers in twenty two years. I mean, even if you take out the fact that Pochettino was there for about five and a half, that's such an alarming statistic and turnover of managers. It, it's no way you're ever going to develop any stability. So the moment Spurs kind of realise that that's actually the way to do it and maybe show a little bit of patience with managers and, and backing and, and, and understanding. Um, and hopefully, you know, I really hope that's what Newcastle do with Eddie Howe because it's not going to be all plain sailing. You know, you've had this really quick rise this season and there's going to be points where it's going to dip um, and I hope that they don't do the Daniel Levy thing, which is suddenly be attracted by a glamour appointment, of which he's had quite a few recently. Um, because I think there's a lot of teams out there that are showing that. And I mean, man, you as well, you know, Ten Hag is not a glamour appointment for them. As actually, I was quite surprised. Actually, Spurs had a really good look at Ten Hag. And I think at the time he was quite open to coming and they didn't really pull the trigger on that. And I think it shows that. You know, he, he can go into a big club, but you can still bring that project mentality way if you do it right. Um, you know, whether Potter manages that at Chelsea eventually, I don't know. Um, that that may just be too difficult a club to imprint that vision on. I don't know. They're like a, Spurs are a bit like a kind of a Poundland version of Chelsea, just without the like the, the decent uh, money spent and the trophies. Um, yeah, yeah, it's Tottenham, honestly, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> I just feel like I've been talking endlessly about how Spurs keep making a mess of their decision-making. Um, and I seem to do it every single season at the moment as well. Um, but who knows? Like I say, finished fourth last season. They're still in fourth right now. You never know what can happen. The international break is meant to be a time of peace and relaxation, but I don't think you've had that uh, this week, <laughs> Alistair. Um, Matt, I'll come to you first before we then go around and get a kind of predictions do you think this one's going to go down to the wire? Do you think we're going to be going into that kind of the last uh, week of May with the, the, the Champions League spots still up for grabs? Yeah, I do. I think it'll go go all the way. I think probably not for, for all of the teams, but certainly there'll be be two or three, I think, on the, the final day that need the, a result to, to stay in the position or, or a reliant maybe on, on another team slipping up. But yeah, it's, it's so hard to predict. I think from a Liverpool perspective, I'm... Like I said before, I'm, I'm sort of 50-50 with it. I think Liverpool maybe are the team that's most likely to be able to string together maybe seven or eight on the spin where they can can go on and win just because they've done that in the past. They've got one or two players coming back from injury, but you know it, it, it's been a long time since that happened. It, it's certainly not happened this season. It would take you know an upturn in form really for Liverpool to to go on and do that. So yeah, I think I think there's there's a decent chance for Liverpool to get in there, but. They are they're going to have to show something that we haven't seen so far this season, which is just consistency, really. For you know, seven, eight games in a row, they are going to have to go on a little bit of a run, but they have done it before. I guess that's what kind of worries me to it to an extent. I wonder if Newcastle's kind of peak of form came too early in the season because I don't know if they've got the squad depth. You know, if they get one or two injuries, then they're absolutely, absolutely, you know, done for. We've, we've seen it. Uh, you know, in, in recent weeks where they've been missing key players. Um, Richie, have, have Brighton got the squad depth, do you think, to mount a, a, a real challenge towards the end of the season? I don't think they do, just because also, like, you know, we've talked about how Brighton do have games in hand, but at some point, though, that does become a sort of a very congested fixture list. And when you have a, a squad that's, in terms of real quality, maybe you're looking at under 15 in terms of maybe having a key, key impact. I don't think Brighton have that strength and depth, but um, I, 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 yeah, I'd love to see it happen because, you know, it's kind of the David versus the Goliaths, you know, Brighton versus the behemoths out there. You've got like pound for pound, Brighton, I think, have the second um, cheapest assembled squads in the Premier League behind Brentford. Same for salary. Um, and just going back to, I think, your point earlier, Ali, about kind of being able to carry on, um, Brighton, uh, Dan Ashworth once said that uh, Brighton sort of is like a um, a wheel and the spokes of a bicycle. And basically, you just the whole foundation is nicely done and just one person goes out and then one person comes in. And it's just really, the infrastructure is, is beautiful there. So, um, yeah, I, I think it would be a push. I, I do think Brighton can get, I think they can get top six, but I think Champions League is maybe a, a bridge too far. Just brilliant to be in the conversation as it is from a Newcastle perspective. I'll start with you then, Ali. Who's going to get top four football? It's a really tough one. I'd say 
I don't think it'll be Spurs. I think injuries in particular are going to see off Spurs. Um, we've got lots of attackers, but pretty much everywhere else in the squad is absolutely threadbare at the moment. I think Liverpool will take that fourth spot. And then Spurs will be kind of battling out there. Maybe they may even drop as far as sixth or seventh. It depends on how well Brighton do in, in these coming games. Matt? Yeah, I'll go with, with Liverpool. I think it'll be Liverpool or Spurs. I think that experience is, is really, really important. I kind of feel a little bit like what Gary Neville's been saying all season about Arsenal. If they've not done it yet, so how do we know they're going to do it? It kind of feels a bit like that with, with Newcastle and I'm reluctant to go down that, that same path. But yeah, I'll, I'll try and try and let Newcastle prove me wrong. But I think I think Liverpool and, and Spurs would be my favourites. And like I said, the, the the ability for Liverpool to put together a little bit of a run, it might not have to be as many as seven or eight games. It, it might be five or six if they can do that. I think, yeah, I, I think Liverpool just about. Richie? I think Newcastle are going to nip in. I just feel that Liverpool <laughs> I just feel that Liverpool are just a bit too out of sorts and they don't quite know their like true identity at the moment. Whereas all of the past they were kind of the rock and roll heavy metal type thing. I just feel that they're sort of um between the rock and the hard place. I just don't think they're quite consistent enough. Um and I think yeah, I think Newcastle could just nip in. I hope you're right. My my, my heart says Newcastle and I look at the fixtures, I say I think they've probably got the easiest run in. But it's just whether they can escape any more suspensions or injuries. You know, like if Bruno Gomeresh picks up another injury and he's been carrying a knock probably the last six weeks or so, then I think their chances are go down a level. And you don't want to build around one player, but you know he is the man who's driving them. So it's whether they can they can just escape you know some bad luck in terms of injuries and suspensions and, and maintaining the home form as well. I think Sunday's game against Manchester United is going to be a a huge marker um, for the rest of the season. So, heart says Newcastle, my head says Liverpool. So, there we go. Not quite sitting on the fence, but but nearly. Chaps, thank you very much for sharing your insight. Um, and to you guys listening, at wh- wherever you're listening or watching from, hit that subscribe button and follow whether you're on Blood Red or you listen from a Spurs or Brighton perspective. It's been a pleasure to uh, catch up with the guys and head over to... Uh, the relevant websites to catch up with all the latest club news from your club. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.